Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to turn with me to Song of Solomon chapter 8 as we conclude our series this morning. There's a light bulb that's located in Livermore, California that has been burning for 115 years. Let me say that again. There's a light bulb. It's in Livermore, California. It's been burning for 115 years. It was first installed at a fire station in June of 1901, and it's still burning. It is burnt continuously for all but nine and a half hours when the power went out about four years ago. So apart from that, this light bulb has been burning continuously. Now, if you're like me, you're probably asking this question. Well, if there is a light bulb that's been burning for 115 years, then why do I have to replace my light bulb so often? Well, the answer to that question may shock you, and it may seem a little bit hard to believe, but in December 23rd, 1924, there was a meeting that occurred in Geneva, Switzerland. It was between various light bulb manufacturers like GE, Phillips, and others, and it's been called the Phoebus Cartel. They came together and, and they decided that they would limit how long the light bulbs they made would last. And they determined that they would not make light bulbs that lasted over a thousand hours. Even though the technology was available at that time to make light bulbs that would run over 100,000 hours. Now, why did they do that? Why did they invent this, this strategy called plan obsolescence? Well, the reason is because they wanted to make money. And they began to make things that intentionally broke, intentionally gave out, intentionally did not last. And today, we see the results of that, don't we? Almost everything we have seems to give out. Our appliances, our cell phones, our cars, we have to replace them, it seems like, much more often than we want to. And what can be said of our appliances can unfortunately be said about our marriages. From 1900 to present, the divorce rate has risen over 700% in America. Four out of ten children that have been born since the 70s have grown up in either partially or fully single family homes. The American um, Psychology Association is the one that says that 40 to 50 percent of marriages today end in divorce. And the statistic is 8.8 years is the average length of a marriage in America today. We even have what we call no-fault divorces if there is such a thing. It seems like divorce is becoming easier and easier to get in America. Someone said it this way, it is legally easier and less risky to dump your wife than it is to fire an employee. Now some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been on the receiving end of a phone call, a letter, or conversation where your spouse told you that 
that they didn't want to be married anymore. Perhaps you tried desperately to keep your marriage, and yet your spouse walked out on you. Now, there are others of you here this morning, for, for some reason or another, have walked out on your spouse. You're the one who chose to end it. You're the one who chose to walk away. You're the one who chose to give up. Now, let me say before I go any further, it's not my desire to make you feel bad. It's not my desire to take you on a guilt trip because because I've got enough junk in my trunk to keep me busy. I, I think I've been transparent enough with you so that you know that, that I don't ever say that I've got it all together. I, I know that I have faults. I know that I have failures. I know that I have struggles in my life. And I can say to you this morning with all of my heart this, that whenever God gives us a plan in his word, regardless of whether it has to do with marriage or or premarital sex, or drunkenness, or whatever else, whenever we break that plan that God gives us, it robs us of God's best. Now let me say, wherever you are this morning, God wants to meet you where you are. He offers healing to those who are hurting. He offers forgiveness for those who have sinned. You see, it's not your past that matters. God's grace and God's forgiveness can cover that. The question is, what are we going to do with our present? What are we going to do with our future? Because we can't change our past, but what we can do is we can determine in our present and in the future, we are going to live the way God desires for us to live. And here's what I know. I want every one of you to understand this this morning. If you were married... God's plan, God's desire is for you to stay married. So if you're here and you're married and you're thinking about giving up, understand that's not God's plan. Second, if you're here and, and you're not married but one day you want to be married, understand it's God's plan for you to make a commitment that will last a lifetime. And I believe with all my heart, making that kind of commitment at the beginning and then sticking with it is one of the keys to genuine intimacy in our marriage. And so with that said, I want us to begin by, by looking through this passage. Song of Solomon chapter 8 verse 5. And notice what it says. Who is this sweeping in from the desert, leaning on her lover? I aroused you under the apple tree where your mother gave you birth, where in great pain she delivered you. Now, for you ladies who have had babies, that's an understatement, isn't it? I mean, great pain is an understatement. Childbirth is difficult. Now, what is going on here? Shulamite is reminiscing about her past. And as we read this, we discover throughout this book that Shulamite and Solomon met. They, they fell in love. They married. They experienced passion. They endured problems. And in every season of their life, they never stopped loving one another. Do you see that word leaning? Who is this? Sweeping in from the desert, leaning on her lover. When I read that, I think about my mom and dad. 
Here's a picture of them right here. They've been married for close to 59 years now. 59 years. It'll be 59 years in July. That's a long time. And my mom's health is not very good right now. She's had some serious back surgery and she has some major back problems and she can hardly get around. And because of that, my dad has to do almost everything. And he's 81 years old. And he had a terrible fall last May and, and had to have his shoulder reconstructed. But, but, I mean, he does basically everything around the house. He cleans up. He cooks. He does the errands. I mean, he about does it all. And I've never heard him complain about that. I've never heard him say a single thing about my mother negatively. He, he sees it as an opportunity to express his love to her, to care for her. Now she walks with a cane and she walks with a walker and, and it, it, it's, it's such a, a heartbreaking but, but a heart rejoicing thing when I'm able to watch them walk slowly because that's as quick as my mom can go, but walk slowly and my mom is leaning on my dad. And so when I read this, that's what I think about. Now let me say to you, my mom and dad, they haven't had a perfect marriage. They've had storms that they've had to weather. They've had problems. And, and my dad would tell you that there are times that, that he's been a little too intense when he was younger. And, and there were times that they had to work through some issues. But I can tell you with, with an honest heart in observing my mom and dad that that after 59 years of marriage, they love one another more today than they did when they first got married. And that's what endless love is all about, is committed to staying together. And committed to staying together isn't easy. Sometimes it's not fun. And there are going to be times that we feel like giving up. But when you do it, you discover that your love for one another grows and grows and develops and matures. And that's what God wants for each of us. He wants us to stick together so that one day we can look back as we lean on one another and we are gazing into one another's eyes and we can say, I am so glad I married you 59 years ago. You see, that's the kind of marriage they had. They met. They fell in love. They courted. They got married. They had passion. They had problems. But in every season of life, they loved one another. Now, with that said, there's something I want us to do. And, and this is one of those off-the-cuff things. As I was studying last night, God just laid this on my heart. Here, here's what I want us to do. I want us to, to have a time of mentoring this summer. And what I would like for us to do is for couples who, who have strong marriages, who have been married for 20 plus years, couples who have strong marriages, been married 20 plus years, that doesn't mean that there aren't times that you want to kill one another or don't want to kill one another, but it means that you've weathered the storms and you're committed to see it through. What I would like for us to do is for some of the couples who have been married for a while 
to be willing to meet together with some younger couples who were starting out in an informal setting over dinner, over dessert, just at the house, and you can drink coffee or whatever you want to, but just talk. Ask questions, answer questions, and just get together. Because understand, if the average marriage in America lasts for 8.8 years, that's not good. And so how can we up that number? Well, one of the ways is we can learn from those who have made it. And so if you want to be mentored, let me encourage you on that prayer line on your communication card, just put that. I want to be mentored. And make sure you put your name on there. We won't know who you are. And if you are been married for 20 plus years and you're willing, you and your spouse, to meet with a couple and, or several couples and just meet with them three or four times this summer. If you would be willing to do that, put that on your communication card. Because our desire is to help couples get to that point if Jesus tarries so that one day, as we lean on one another, we will be able to look into one another's eyes and we'll be able to say, I'm thankful that I married you so many years ago. So how can we get there? How can we get to this endless love in a disposable world? Well, I want you to listen to what it says in, in Song of Solomon chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. And, and let me just say, these two verses are packed with truths. So listen closely. Be prepared to take notes. Notice what it says. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For your love is as strong as death, is jealousy as enduring as the grave, Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. And many waters cannot quench it, nor can rivers drown it out. If a man tried to buy love with all of his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. Now in those two verses right there, we discover six nuggets, six truths that can help us have an endless love. And so if you're here and you're a Christ follower and, and you're saying, that's the kind of love I want. And let me just say, if you're not a Christ follower, that should be the kind of love you want. So if you're here and you want that kind of endless love where you make it into the twilight years and you're still in love, then let me give you some things to do. First of all, you've got to be willing to relinquish ownership. Now look back at, at what Shulamite said, not in chapter 8, but chapter 2. If your Bible's open, turn to chapter 2, verse 16. Notice what she said. She said, my lover is mine, and I am his. And now turn over to chapter 6, verse 3. Again, Shulamite is speaking, and notice what she says. I am my lover's, and my lover is mine. I am my lover, and my lover is mine. Now this speaks of ownership, doesn't it? I am my lover's. I belong to my lover. And my lover is mine. My lover belongs to me. You see, all too often when it comes to relationships, what we do is we focus on our rights, our needs. But Shulamite reminds us that in a loving marriage, it's not about me. It's about my spouse. It's about 
my lover. Now, now look at the first part of verse 5. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Now, in the Old Testament, a seal was a symbol of ownership. And a seal was considered permanent. It was binding. It was irrevocable. We see this in the book of Esther when, when the king placed his seal on a decree. And he wanted to break the decree because he realized it was a bad decree. But he said that the king's seal is irrevocable. It is binding. Once my seal has been on it, nothing can take it off. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, we are told that God has placed his seal in our hearts, guaranteeing what he has promised. That's one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but that's one of the reasons we believe that once we are saved, we are saved. Nothing can change that because when we are saved and we become a part of the family of God and we become his, his possession, he places his seal on us. And nothing can ever change that. Now notice what Shulamite says. She says that I want both an inner seal on my heart and I want an outer seal on my arm. The inner seal remind us that, reminds us that, that our heart is to be committed to our lover, our spouse. But the seal on the arm reminds us that, that not only are we to be committed on the inside, our love is to be seen by all. And so our permanence, our seal to one another, is something that, that originates in the heart, and yet it is seen externally. Uh, that's why I believe, and you know, different people have different views on wedding rings, but, but that's why I believe a wedding ring is important. Because it's an outer symbol, an outward symbol of an inward commitment that we make. And what Shulamite is saying is, I have a seal. I want you to place me like a seal on your heart. And I want you to place me like a seal on your arm. So let me ask you a question. Have you given up ownership? Have you given up your rights, your wants, even your needs for the sake of your spouse? When the Apostle Paul talked about this in Ephesians 5, when he said, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. This is what he was speaking of. Wives submitting are giving up their rights. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it is giving up. Our rights, our lives, for the sake of our spouse. And so it's not one giving up rights. It's both giving up for the sake of their spouse. If you want permanence, if you want endless love, then you've got to get to the point where it's really not about you and your wants, your wishes, your needs. It's about your spouse. Second, you've got to commit to till death do us part. Notice that next phrase. For love is as strong as death. Now whenever I perform a wedding. Two people who are getting married. And they're making their commitment to one another. They have to say these words. You know if they're not willing to say these words. I'm not marrying them. But every couple that gets married has to say this. 
when they're doing the ring ceremony. We're committing for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. And so we're committing to stick with it in the good and the bad as long as we both shall live. You see, God has made it clear in his word that his plan is permanent when it comes to marriage. It is said that Ruth Graham was once asked, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy Graham? And she said, divorce? No. Murder? Yes. (laughs) Till death do us part. That's been God's plan from the very beginning. I want you to listen to what what God said in Malachi chapter 2. This is God speaking. Here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. And, And so the people are crying because God's not listening to them. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Did the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and in spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's army. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Now, don't miss that. God says, the reason that I'm not responding to your worship, the reason that your tears and your welling and all of that is doing no good is because I was there. I witnessed the vows you made. And you are not living up to your vows. Jesus said it this way, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now why do you think God continually points us to the fact that that marriage is to be permanent? Is it because God wants us to be unhappily ever after? Is it because he's some cosmic killjoy that enjoys seeing us miserable? Absolutely not. You see, the reason God wants you to stay together is because he knows the pain and the hurt that divorce causes. There was a cover story several years ago in a major newspaper that said this. Even in a so-called good divorce in which parents amicably minimize their conflicts, children whose parents divorce inhabit a more difficult emotional landscape than those who grow up with married parents. Now, this was according to a survey of 1,500 adults, 18 to 35. It went on to say, all the happy talk about divorce is designed to reassure parents, but it's not the truth for children. Even a good divorce restructures children's lives and leaves them traveling between two distinct worlds. It becomes their job, not their parents, to make sense of those two worlds. None hear me. If you've been divorced, I say again, this isn't a desire to make you feel guilty or to judge you for past things. Please hear me. It's not this. This is just to let you know that if you are married today, you need to make your marriage work. Not only for your sake, but for the sake of your children. 
You see, we've got to go into marriage with a till death do us part mentality. Third, if we want a marriage that's composed of endless love, we need to express the right kind of jealousy. Don't miss that next phrase. It's jealousy as enduring as the grave. Now, most of us have been taught that jealousy is wrong. It's a sin, right? I mean, doesn't it say in Galatians chapter 5 that, that one of the fruits of the um, of flesh is jealousy? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're told that love is not jealous. And so we've taken this and we've come to believe that all jealousy is a sin and all jealousy is wrong. And yet, the Bible says over 20 times that God is a jealous God. Let me, let me read to you two passages. Exodus 20 verse 5. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, the New Testament, it says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So the Bible says that there is a godly jealousy. Jimmy Evans has a book out that's called Marriage on the Rock. And in that book, he talks about legitimate jealousy. And this is what he says. He says, legitimate jealousy is the righteous emotion that causes us to protect what is rightfully ours. You see, bad jealousy smothers. Bad jealousy is suspicious. Bad jealousy stifles. But legitimate jealousy protects. Legitimate jealousy fights for Remember, when you marry, you are relinquishing ownership to the one you marry. You are no longer your own. You belong to your spouse. And so you need to make sure that you maintain that legitimate jealousy that protects, that builds up, that is willing to fight for. Fourth, don't lose the passion. Look at that next phrase. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Now, some translations say that verse this way. Listen. Its flashes are like the flashes of fire, the flame of the Lord. Now, you may ask, why are there some verses that translate that, the flame of the Lord, or a divine flame. Well, the reason is the Hebrew word translated flame has the suffix yah, which can be the shortened version of Yahweh, which would be a flame that comes from God. Now, can I tell you that, that God's flame, God's love, is a passionate love and here's what I know. We get ourselves into trouble when we let the flame burn down. And it's easy to let that happen. The longer we are married, the easier it is not to keep the fire burning. Because if you're going to keep the fire burning, you've got to continually put new logs on it. You've got to stoke the fire. The fire isn't going to stay burning by itself. It's going to take you keeping it burning. 
And all too often, we get married and we think just because we love one another and just because we love Jesus, the passion is going to continue. And it won't. You've got to work on keeping the fire burning. Now, how do you do that? Well, you figure it out. But I can tell you this. The way you keep the fire burning is you work at it. You go on dates. You have fun together. You laugh together. I got to tell you, when a couple stops laughing together, they're in trouble. And so you have fun. Keep the passion burning. Don't lose the passion. Fifth, weather the storms. Now notice verse 7, that that first phrase. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it out. In other words, and excuse this phrase if it's offensive, I don't mean it that way, but, but what this phrase is saying is come hell or high water, you don't give up. I mean, that's what it's saying. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. In other words, hang in there, weather the storms. Someone said it this way. There are two things which should never be started prematurely. One is divorce. The other is embalming. Amen? <laughs> and, yet, and yet what happens is we have the, the first sign of trouble. And what do we do? Well, I better start making some plans. I better start protecting myself. And that's wrong. We weather the storms. So if you're struggling right now, and if you're thinking about giving up, don't. Stick with it. Hold on. If you do, I'm here to tell you, things can get significantly better. Research indicates that 86% of unhappily married couples who stay together find that after five years, they are happier. Three-fourths of people who said their marriage were very unhappy but stayed together reported that five years later, their marriages were very happy or quite happy. Now, what does that mean? If you weather the storm, there is light at the end of the tunnel. The Bible is filled with examples. I want to give you one extreme example. Hosea, married to a woman named Gomer. They had several kids. Gomer decided she didn't want to be married anymore, but she not only decided she didn't want to be married anymore, I mean, she did a U-turn. She went out into the world and became a prostitute, selling her body to other men. Can you imagine how that made Hosea feel? But the Bible tells us that Hosea never gave up. He never divorced her after all of that. Finally, Gomer got to the end of her rope. She is probably beaten down and battered, and she was no longer the beautiful woman she used to be. And she was being sold on a slave block to the highest bidder. And, and God said, Hosea, Gomer's being sold. Go buy her. And he did. And he took her back. <laughs> and he didn't take her back to judge her or to punish her. He took her back to love her. Now let me just say, I, I'm with you. When I read the story of Hosea and I go, wow. I don't know if I could do that. I, I understand 
But that's the kind of love that God can give us. A love that is, that is able to weather the worst of storms. Now, some of you are saying, well, Rocky, what are grounds for divorce? And, and let me just say, listen to me. That's the wrong question to ask. If you're asking that question, then, then you desperately need counseling right now. And yes, God grants the right of divorce under certain grounds. But that's never his perfect plan. It's never his perfect will. And as Christ followers, it should be our desire to always want God's best, even when it's difficult. So we weather the storms. And then six, we remember the value of true love. Notice what that next phrase says. If a man tried to buy love with all of his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. In other words, you can't buy love. Money can't buy you love like the song win. It has no price tag. It's not for sale. But, but the opposite is true as well. Once you've experienced love, there is nothing that is worth losing it for. Not your job, not money, not fame, not fortune. Nothing is worth losing the love. It is so valuable that once you have it, you fight for it at all cost. And so you've got to go into marriage realizing the, the value of true love. Now there's one other point that, that Solomon and Shulamite give us here in chapter 8. And, and before I give you this point, I, I must share with you that, that this point is primarily for those of you who are not yet married. And yet it applies to us who are married as well. Because as we go on into chapter 8, we discover that, that Shulamite is reminiscing. And I want you to listen to what she says in, in verses 8 through 10. And this is, this is her brothers speaking. We have a little sister, too young to have breast. What will we do for our sister if someone asked to marry her? If she is a virgin, like a wall, we will protect her with a silver tower. But if she is promiscuous like a swinging door, we will block her door with a cedar bar. And then Shulamite says this, I was a virgin, like a wall. Now my breasts are like towers. When my lover looks at me, he is delighted with what he sees. Now there's disagreement, let me say, in, in how scholars interpret these verses. But many, including myself, believe that that what Shulamite is doing is she's looking back. We discover in chapter 1 that she had brothers, and her brothers made her work hard out in the field. She didn't appreciate that at the time. But now that she's looking back, there's something she appreciated about her brothers. And that is her brothers were very protective of her. And it's talking about promiscuity here. And it's talking about a, a, a young lady who is like a wall, who is impenetrable. She is not going to be promiscuous. 
And then it's talking about this lady who is like a swinging door who opens to anyone and, and everyone. And Shulamite says, I was like a wall. I was a virgin. And when Solomon looks at me, he delights. Now, now you could think that the reason he delights is because of what it says about her breast, but that's not why she is delightful to Solomon. She is delightful to Solomon because when Solomon looks at her, he knows that she loves him and him alone. And he can build this endless love with her. Now, some of you may be asking, as we ask at the very beginning of this book, so, what about Solomon? I mean, obviously, he messed up. He had hundreds of wives and concubines. I mean, obviously, he messed up. So, so how can we say that he came to the end and, and they are leaning on one another and they are in love? Well, let me just say, this is my interpretation and, and though some may disagree with me, this is my interpretation. You see, when, when Solomon wrote this book, he was madly in love with his wife. The book of Proverbs tells us about, about how a person is to live, and Solomon wrote that when he was applying wisdom to his life. The book of Ecclesiastes is written toward the end of his life as, as he's tried to find happiness in all of these different things, and you can read the book of Ecclesiastes and discover how Solomon tried to find pleasure and, and happiness and, and peace and joy and money and sex and, and drunkenness and all these other things. And at the end of it all, this is what Solomon said. He said, it's all empty. All of it is empty. And then at the end of Ecclesiastes says this, this is what I've learned. This is the end of it all. Fear God. In other words, live for him. Live by his word and obey him. And so I believe with all my heart that even though Solomon strayed and messed up, at the end of his life, he came back. And the love that he had for Shulamite that he never truly lost was rekindled and refreshed. And reborn. And that's what God wants for you. Without the parentheses. God doesn't want you to experience the, the negative that Solomon had. But Solomon or God does want you to have the kind of relationship that Solomon and Shulamite had. That is described in this book. And so with that said let me give you several practical things that we're going to end this series. First of all remember. If you want to have this kind of intimacy, you've got to remember the commitment you made to one another and the commitment you made to God. And you've got to recognize these vows are binding vows. You've got to remember the love that you once had for your spouse, and you've got to make a commitment to, to hold on to that love. Second, you've got to remove. If you want to have this kind of intimacy that lasts a lifetime, you've got to remove divorce as an option. I would encourage you, wherever you're at in, in your relationship and, and however many times you've been through marriage before, if you're married today, when you go home, sit down with your spouse, talk about this, open up a dictionary, 
turn to divorce and mark through it in your dictionary. Just say, this is not a word. This is not an option for us. We will work through the storms. Third, recognize. Recognize that this kind of intimacy takes a lot of work. Love is not like some expensive diamond you discover. It's more like a precious, delicate flower you grow. It has to be nourished and cultivated and protected. And that's what you have to do if you want this kind of endless love. Next, you need to recognize. You need to recognize that there will be tough times. There always will be. Next, you've got to refuse. Refuse to get lazy. Enjoy one another. Because one of the things that will creep into a good marriage and destroy it is boredom. And then finally, you need to remain close to Jesus. You see, Jesus can make a miserable life happy and a happy life happier. Jesus can take a bad marriage and make it good. He can take a good marriage and make it great. And he can take a great marriage and make it greater. And that doesn't mean that troubles will not come. They will come. But when Christ is walking with you, even the troubles can bring you closer together. God wants you to have intimacy. And in this room, we've got people at different stages. Some who are more newly married, some who have been married for about half the time, some of us who have been married for a long, long time. We're at different stages, but wherever we're at in that stage, God wants us to have intimacy. The question is, are we willing to do what we need to do to have it? I want you to close your eyes with me. I want you to bow your heads. And with your eyes closed, with your head bowed, this is what I want to do this morning. First of all, I want to ask you, wherever you're at, if you're married, to make a commitment to endless love. Make the commitment to do your part in having this kind of endless love. But second, I want to challenge you. And the challenge is this. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be next to impossible without the help of Jesus. And so if you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you this morning to surrender your life to him. Because before you're ever going to be able to make this kind of unconditional commitment of love to someone, you need to experience it for yourself. And that's the kind of love that God has for us through Jesus. And so if you're here and you've never made that commitment, then I challenge you today to pray this prayer. Dear God, I come to you this morning recognizing my need I am a sinner. I need you. Forgive me. I don't want to live my way anymore. I know you love me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead to defeat sin and death for me. Right here, right now, I'm giving my life to you. 
Come into my heart. Take control. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. Thank you for hearing me. And thank you for saving me. Amen.